Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Well, everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Distressed Situations. We want to welcome everyone for taking some time with us today. And we are very fortunate to be talking about commercial real estate and issues involving forbearance agreements and receiverships with Amber Seifert. I'm going to give a brief introduction of Amber uh, and then let her expand on that. Amber is a managing director at Trimont Real Estate Advisors. She spent the bulk of her career dealing with commercial real estate issues. Welcome, Amber. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. So nice to be here. So give us a little flavor of your career and your uh, involvement with commercial real estate. Sure, sure. I started, I would say, many, many years ago at a now defunct bank called Washington Mutual. And I kind of just came across them at a career fair and landed as a financial analyst in their asset management side. And so for a while, worked on mostly multifamily properties where they were either assuming loans or kind of transferring beneficial ownership interests in a loan. And then from there, uh, found my way to Prudential, continued to work in portfolio asset management for a larger number of loans, mostly performing loans with some lease approvals, some SNDA negotiations, and then moved on to do a little underwriting for Prudential in the healthcare side. So assisted living, um, independent living, um, more retirement communities. And then 2007, eight hit. And we all kind of had to recareer ourselves during that time period. And I found myself working at J.E. Robert Company on distressed CMBS debt, which I will say was probably more of an education than graduate school was because you really just kind of got thrown into the deep end, a lot of loans, a lot of problems. And in that downturn, you know, there was also a credit crunch. So you didn't necessarily have a lot of equity hanging out on the sidelines ready to bail out a lot of these loans. And you really, I would say, had somewhat of um, a window to get a little creative because we had debt on the loan if you needed to restructure that debt or kind of split the debt into two positions, do an A-B structure. We had, we spent a lot of time working out loans. I personally worked out a couple of vacant, you know, Circuit City, big boxes. We had a lot of interesting things going on. And then the economy started to get better, surely, and slowly but surely. And then since then, uh, mostly started working on larger performing books of business. Now with Trimont, which is an asset advisory firm, we help our clients, mostly large private equity groups and banks with their debt and equity portfolios, whether that be debt on a fully constructed building, a bridge debt loan where there's some type of reconstruction or additional finish out component. And we also do a lot of work on construction loans, large ground up construction loans. So as a company, we kind of have a a wide breadth of work. And then we, of course, have our special servicing distressed 
department. So we can, you know, bridge the gap from performing to non-performing, you know, ground up construction to fully constructed um, real estate, which hopefully keeps us nimble and versatile. I have a couple of things to respond to with that. For everyone listening, this is exactly why we wanted Amber on the program. You can tell she has the depth that we're looking for and we're grateful for you being here. The second thing is I remember working out Circuit City loans in the 2007, eight, nine timeframe. And uh, that was an interesting experience in the Eastern District of Virginia. It was a very scary time with uncertainty going throughout the country at the time. Lots of room for creativity at that point. And one day it might make a great podcast just to talk about Circuit City because there was everything under the sun in that uh, bankruptcy case. Did you see like did you see people trying to repurpose the Circuit City boxes and what did you see people trying to do with them? We saw proposals for everything. Bowling alleys. Mhm. Daycare. I saw a roller skating rink. Roller skating rink. It was amazing. It's too big for a CrossFit gym. Mhm. Too small for a mall. Interesting space. I think I saw one group that was trying to figure out if they could do like a wine depot, which, you know, sounds like a brilliant idea, but it was hard. They, they were very deep, large, big boxes. They were, they were hard to figure out what to do with. H.H. Gregg took a few. I don't know how they're doing today, but they did take a few. That'll be our podcast, Postmortem on Circuit City. Circuit City, yes. Mm-hmm. Going back in time. So the one thing we like to do on distressed situations is is do a couple of things before we get into the meat of the program. And the meat of the program today is going to be forbearance agreements and receiverships. But let's start. Amber, what do you do for fun? Oh, fun. Um, I would say travel. I like to travel around, see new places. You know, if you have the opportunity to get out of the country, see new cultures. But mostly since the pandemic, it's been domestic travel probably to outdoor destinations. So a few beaches, but mostly mountains. I try to practice skiing as much as I can. Being a resident of Texas, that obviously makes it a little challenging. The mountains are great in the spring, summer, and fall, all winter, all seasons. So you can hike during the you know spring, summer, and fall and ski in the winter. So I'll say mountains, exploring the mountainous regions. Excellent. Excellent. What about you? Like, do we go back and forth? Do you get uh, to sure. say- We can. Yeah. What do I do Wait, for fun? fun? <laughs> You're the first person that's asked me that on the program. So I'll tell you, I am like you. I'm a traveler. Okay. Uh, so believe it or not, day after tomorrow, I leave for Tanzania to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. That's big. And I feel like must have taken probably months of preparation to- Years. The trip has been on the book for years. Years. Okay. Yes. I've seen some videos. Are you going with people? Do you have like, is it a Sherpa? You have people, guides who go with you? It's a guided trip. Mm -hmm. My wife is going with me and we're joining six other people that we haven't met. Wow. I mean, that's big. That's definitely a big bucket list item. For sure. It's a big bucket list year for me. All right. The other question is you're on a deserted island. You can only eat one food. This is hard. I mean, I've thought about this before, but it was in concept of three, and I don't know if I could whittle it down. They would have to be like chocolate, wine, and avocados. (laughs) I feel like with those three things, you can do a lot. (laughs) 
Fair enough. Chocolate wine, avocado mix. That's yeah. your favorite. Uh, not mixed together, but individually. <laughs> you can do a lot with that. Maybe you can forage for some other things, make a salad with some avocado, have hot chocolate, drink the wine. All right. Down to business. What are your observations in what is going on with commercial real estate generally right now? I think it's kind of hard to know. I mean, at the beginning of COVID, I think everyone thought disaster was imminent. And, you know, because there were so many unknown unknowns, everyone, you know, got really concerned there was going to be a ton of distrust coming through the system. And I don't know that that actually played out like we thought it was going to at the beginning of the pandemic. We definitely saw, and I know we're going to get into this in a little more detail, but a large number of, I will call them deferment forbearance agreements, kind of providing borrowers some flexibility around their payments during the months where most counties, cities, states had mandated closures in place for retail offices, restaurants, bars, movie theaters, things like that. And then I feel like we saw the government participate in this downturn in the form of unemployment and a you know, in a different manner than they have in the past. And so I think we've seen a lot of these real estate assets come back. We haven't seen the distressed or the defaults in multifamily like we thought we would. We obviously saw the hotel sector get hit a lot more. But then there were some standouts. Last year, some hotels that were near national parks did really well. And this year, I think we're seeing a lot of pent-up travel demand. Multifamily is done well. Office retail struggled, obviously some. And office, I think it's too soon to tell because their lease terms are a little bit longer. And I think, you know, obviously as a society, we've proven that we can work from home, still be efficient, still get the job done. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how the office sector plays out. But I don't think we'll know that for a couple of more years. And there's actually kind of an interesting survey I came across recently that CBRE did, where they interviewed large office office tenants, mid-sized office tenants, and smaller office tenants. And they... Their responses were from the larger companies that they saw a moderate downsize in their future. And obviously, you know, things can change. I think this was a survey that was probably taken in the spring, summer. So before Delta kind of came back and paused, you know, people's decisions to come back to work. But a lot of the feedback looked like office is still going to exist. It's going to become more flexible. And whereas a lot of companies had gone to this kind of like trading floor environment, there was going to be a little more thought to space in office. And so maybe it's since groups probably possibly had downsized to get to their kind of high capacity scenarios, they may not actually lose space at all, but they may reconfigure the space that they have. So there's more offices. And if we found ourselves in a situation similar to this in the future, it would be easier to still come into the office because we'd already sort of created that space for everyone, you know, to operate safely. Yeah. And the office space, especially in the legal world, it is still very much unknown what's going to happen. And I think that one of the best points you made was how is the workforce going to react to going to work? The switch from being fully in person to fully virtual was actually, I think, much easier than it's going to be going back the other way. Well, do you have, I mean, you obviously have friends, coworkers, family members who are 
in the office or somewhat back in the office. I have a lot of friends that have been back in the office for a while, some kind of permanently with masks and some in some type of a hybrid form. So I know I have some friends where they're like one week on, one week off, and that gives them the opportunity to have like only 50% of their staff in the office, which gives them a lot more space. And they are what I think you would call hot desking it where, you know, they're sitting a little more spaced out. We've, um, not fully mandated a return to work, but we are offering two work from home days. And I think when you think through if everyone's in the office just three days a week and those days are kind of fluctuating depending on what team you're on, I'm likely not going to have the full office back in this space at any one day or time, which makes things better for bathrooms and the common areas and the break room just means you will have less opportunity to come into contact with people. I also think a lot of buildings have had to get thoughtful about their HVAC systems and maybe figure out, I don't even know what you would call them, but very high functioning filters and more efficient airflow mechanisms within their buildings. And I think, you know, as new construction is going on, I think green, being a green building is becoming a lot more important to groups. So I think people are going to come back. I think it's going to be some type of a flexible coming back. What do you think 100%. I think the, the days of working the nine to five, five days a week and having the weekends off are gone. Mm-hmm. And honestly, in the legal business, the, the nine to five doesn't exist anyway. We're on call all the time. So location is less important than I think it's ever been. I, the last time I had a client in the office was in probably 2019, maybe 2018. So remote working is very simple in our business. And I I suspect much of the work that your team does can be done remotely as well. It can. And then maybe it just, you know, also comes down to preference. Like, I think there are some people that really feel like they thrive working from home. And then there are others, I think, that don't, that actually prefer the office setting, kind of prefer the distinct difference between work and home and, you know, appreciate kind of the function of getting in your car and maybe not driving a super long distance. I feel like if you have a long commute, those individuals actually prefer working from home. But if you have a reasonably short commute, I find that a lot of people appreciate the person-to-person interaction. They appreciate the opportunity to go into a conference room, to walk over to someone and ask them a question. Um, And so I think, I think just from a preference standpoint, you will have a number of people that prefer to go back into the office, maybe not a hundred percent, but at least in some flexible capacity. Exactly. So now Let's say you're one of those uh, borrowers that is has the misfortune of having some difficulty collecting the rents or you've had something go awry in your cost structure. I need a forbearance agreement. What is that and what is my lender thinking when I say I need a forbearance agreement? So the first thing I'm thinking is, what is your story? Like, why do you need this forbearance agreement? And, you know, what's your story three to six months from now? So hypothetically, if your story was, I have a lot of tenants who haven't been able to pay rent, or they've only been able to pay rent because the unemployment benefits had been extended. And now that the moratorium is up, I have like 50% of my multifamily property that I need to evict. My Revenue is obviously going to be down for the next three months. However, I'm pretty confident there's a lot of interest in my building. And I think within three to six months, I can have at least back up to 
I'll say 90% occupancy, let's even say 85% occupancy. And at that point, I'm able to make my mortgage payment again, you know, pretty easily. I think the first thing is to understand the story. If, in my opinion, a forbearance is supposed to be a short-term solution, a short-term, hopefully, resolution that allows the borrower, the owner of the property, a little bit of time to to write whatever issue is at hand. And they can do that in a number of ways. The example I initially gave you is they're going to figure out how to generate enough revenue to continue to make their debt payment. Alternatively, they could say, look, I'm, you know, going to put this property on the market. I think the, you know, multifamily real estate investment sales market is so hot right now, which it is. Cap rates are down, interest rates are low. I think even with, you know, all of these tenants that may need to be evicted, I think I can sell this asset with the upside story of once you release it, your revenue is going to increase and I can sell it now, pay off your debt and then just be out of it. That's a possibility. They could go out and look for a new loan to take my loan out. They could go out and look for an additional equity investor to, you know, infuse some capital to help them bridge this period of time where they need to release their multifamily property and then continue to pay our debt. So in my opinion, I'm looking first for the story. Is the story credible? Is there merit behind it? Can you back it up from industry resources? So if I talk to an appraiser or have to get an appraisal or speak to a broker, is everyone saying, yes, this is a really hot market? Once you kind of clean up the tenants that unfortunately, you know, will need to move or figure out some new place to live based on their income stream, um, you should reasonably be able to lease this property back up in three to six months, then, you know, that's something I'm going to consider, I would say, underwriting and making a recommendation on. So you've heard the story, you like the story, you're going to give the borrower a forbearance. Mm -hmm. What I think of about a forbearance is I have a borrower that's going to acknowledge a default Mm -hmm. In return for acknowledging the default and probably giving me a release, I'm going to forbear from exercising remedies during a specified period of time. First of all, you agree with that definition of the forbearance? I agree completely. And I appreciate you adding that in. As the non-lawyer, I agree it's important to have them acknowledge the default. Um, we are typically not in a position to just forbear or stop payments or provide a little time and wiggle room to a borrower who's not in default. There's really no reason to. So yes, absolutely. They have to acknowledge the default. And it is hopefully a defined period of time. And what I am acknowledging is during that defined period of time, I am not going to start foreclosure proceedings or some other right or remedy allowed under the loan documents. The other thing that, that I think about in forbearance situations is I think about how that story is getting relayed to the lender and the communications, because this is sometimes a chaotic time. The borrower is under financial stress. The borrower is likely in default or imminently going to be in default. One of the things that I like to do, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Amber, is, is put some structure into those discussions. And I think the first and best way to do that is to have the borrower sign a pre-negotiation letter that says, we're going to negotiate, and these are the guardrails that we're going to negotiate under. Number one, I'm not going to say later in court anything that we said in our discussions. 
I'm going to agree that during this period of time, we're only going to reach agreements if they're in writing. And until they're in writing, there's no agreement. What, what has been your perspective on that? Absolutely. We not only try and get pre-negotiation letters in place, in addition to that, when we are kind of, I would say, emailing tentative terms back and forth, maybe after a productive telephone conversation, typically also adding a little bit of disclaimer language to the bottom, just stating, you know, these terms are for discussion purposes only. They will not be considered firm until approved by all parties and reduced to legal documentation. Hopefully also so copying the lawyer I'm working with on the email. So yes, I agree. There has to be a safe space for these conversations to happen in, and that safe space includes a pre-negotiation letter and typically some other, I would say, disclaimer language in, in some emails. I am so glad you raised the email point because so many of the disputes that get resolved in the courts these days are really the email battle. The timeline mm -hmm. is established by email. The terms are established by emails. And at this point, while I haven't done a 50-state survey, I would be willing to wager that all 50 states have electronic signatures acts mm. for which an email can act as a signature. And so you can have an offer and acceptance and a binding contract via email unless you do exactly what you said, which is to provide the right waiver language in those emails. So excellent points. Um, I do have one more question on the forbearance. I can't pay my loan payment. What is the forbearance cost? Mm, that's a good question. To some extent, it depends on where the loan sits. Like, is the loan in a securitization? Is it in a CLO securitization or a CMBS securitization? Is it um, a loan that maybe one of our clients just holds on their balance sheet? So if it's a balance sheet loan, I think the fee to some extent is determined in connection with conversations with the clients. If it's held in a securitization, we typically determine the fee for that. I would say depending on if the forbearance takes a lot of work, which some of them can and be very heavily structured, or if it's something pretty simple, like, you know, we're going to give you some time here for two months to figure out a sale of the property and we're going to get paid off in full, goes into the fee. Obviously, we have them cover all legal costs. And then the fee could, you know, be a couple thousand dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. And so that's, in my experience, I'm, I'm I'm asking for feedback on there. My experience is this is a commercial no negotiation that is truly going to depend upon the story. And for us to try to say today, the fees forbearances for a forbearance are and give a number would be very difficult to do because this is a one-off circumstance that gets negotiated in every individual case. Yes. I mean, once you know the story, I think you can give them a better idea of a range. And then obviously, sometimes we'll work with counsel to get a range on legal fees. And we have to kind of specify these are maybe the legal and forbearance estimates with minimal negotiation on the borrower side. Um, because some instances, it feels like once they get their lawyers involved, maybe after you feel like you've gotten terms kind of ironed out, then all new questions arise and things take much longer than you anticipated. Excellent. All right. So enough about forbearance agreements. All right. We're done with that. Let's switch and turn to receiverships. And I want to do receiverships a little bit differently, like we talked about in getting ready for this, is I want to describe for, for you some of the legal guardrails that are involved in receiverships and then understand how a lender feels about receivership as a tool. 
So I see receivership as a tool to really take a property and put it in the custody of the court. The Latin term is in custodia legis, just means in custody of the court. We use receivership in states where foreclosure takes a long time, and we use receivership where there's a unique property that requires a third-party oversight. For example, uh, property with environmental problems, common strategy for a lender to take that property back through receivership rather than taking title to the property. So if there's a if there's an issue with taking title, receivership is an opportunity to take a, a disputed property or a troubled property, distressed property, move it into the custody of the court and allow that receiver to manage, operate and dispose of the property in a way that maximizes its value for all stakeholders and at the same time be under court supervision. Receivership is generally approved and agreed to in the loan documents. But there is also generally another underpinning for a receivership. In federal court, it's a federal equity receivership, the powers inherent in the federal courts. But in most other receivership scenarios, we're dealing with the statute. Look at Texas law, for example. There are many different statutes that enable the appointment of a receiver, whether it's a general corporate receiver or a property-specific receiver, an insurance receiver. There are even receiverships established for divorce proceedings. So it's a common remedy finding its way into court through various statutory schemes. But now I want to put this in terms uh, that you can comment on. You have a piece of property that serves as your collateral and you're ready to put in a receiver. What are the concerns that you're thinking about as a lender aside from just the legal overlay? So we're obviously, first and foremost, thinking about um, preserving the property. So, you know, typically in a situation where we would consider putting a receiver in place, um, we're in some type of a scenario where there is concern that the current owner or the borrower is not in a position to pay all of the operating expenses, probably specifically property taxes and insurance. And so if we know that, you know, there's distress at the property, the property is challenged to generate enough income to cover the expenses of operating the property. That's probably where the first part of our concern comes in. But I would also go back to what you said at the beginning of your receivership discussion, which is receiverships are a very powerful tool for a lender to use. And we definitely use them in, you know, where it takes a long time to foreclose in those types of states. Um, Obviously, also for any type of an issue where the lenders may be not certain they'd like to step into title and environmental challenges is a good example of that. But I would also say third, and this actually hasn't played out in this downturn, but in the downturn in 2007, 2008, if we had a receiver in place, we were able to preserve the debt. And so while debt is very easy to come by right now and interest rates are really low, in some instances, having some debt in place and being able to restructure that debt actually added value. So I feel like that was kind of the third instance where having a receiver created value. And then fourth, in some instances, if we were able to get comfortable with it, having a receiver kind of sell the asset was kind of a, a, a benefit or a tool we thought about using. But mostly, sorry, to go back to your initial question, we're concerned with preserving the property. So there's some type of issue where 
from an expense standpoint, we're getting concerned there could be like waste or not enough revenue to manage the operations of the property. It's really funny you mentioned selling properties through receivership. That was something we actually did a fair number of times in the 2007, 8, and 9 timeframe. And we did two types. One was to sell for cash. The other was, like you said, leaving the debt in place and having it assumed through the receivership. Lender is able to keep the debt alive, have it assumed through the receivership, all the while being able to have a neutral third party administer the property. So Yes, absolutely. And I would even go as far as to point out that um, most of our kind of securitization documents allow a special servicer to make property advances or advances to preserve the asset. So for taxes and insurance, and it, um, you're may, you're much more comfortable making those advances when you're advancing the funds to the receiver and you have the court appointed receiver in place. There is, you know, obviously an added level of trust that the funds are going to go where they're intended to. And, you know, in some instances, maybe a lot of borrowers would do the same, but just, you know, is there in some state of distress and their debt is not doing well, that, it's not always certain. Well, I can tell you the one thing that we like to see in receivership orders is the ability of the receiver to borrow from the lender for those types of costs, property condition uh, advances, whether it's taxes, insurance, or repairs to the property. It's the receiver that should borrow the money and it get added to the debt. And that's a very important provision in any receivership order. And the, the term generally used for that is the receiver issues receivership certificates. And so that's an add-on to the promissory note referred to as a receivership certificate. So Amber, we are bumping up against the end of our time. We are very grateful for you joining us today and thank you very much. Oh, wow. Thank you. It was so nice to be here. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and on our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.